So my daughter, Morgan, is one of those students that's on her way to camp, and uh, we'll be going to Denver next week as well. So uh, Kevin, on behalf of my wife and I, thank you for taking her away for two weeks. <laughs> we appreciate that. Hey, we're going to be in Luke chapter 13. If you want to go ahead and uh, bookmark that, um, we're going to turn there here in a little bit. Parable of the barren fig tree, we're going to start in verse 1. But this message this morning... Um, I just need to preface it a little bit. It's going to be a little uncomfortable, maybe more for me than for you, but I don't know. I might make you uncomfortable as well. Um, that's not my intent. That's not my goal. Um, my goal is that it's going to be theological. We'll have some history uh, built into it, some, probably some philosophical thoughts, uh, but then also a, a strong dose of hope uh, there at the end. So um, it's going to be truth, maybe uncomfortable truth, um, but it's going to be spoken with a heart of love. So let's pray. Father God, thank you for uh, this morning. We continue to, to pray for those students and, and adults that are traveling today and heading up to Miracle Camp, prepare for the camp counselors that um, are a few weeks into a, just a really long summer, or I guess several weeks into a really long summer. Uh, give them strength and encouragement this week. Uh, Father, thank you for the privilege of uh, your word, uh, of revealing yourself and your, your heart uh, for us through your word. Father, we pray today that your spirit would just speak uh, in this room through me, that it not be about me or Great Oaks or anything here, but it would be about your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Here's the uncomfortable part that you probably already know. One day you will die. One day you're going to die. One day you're going to have a funeral held that you will be the guest of honor at. Stories will be told about you. Pictures will be on display all about your life. Your life will be boiled down to about an hour gathering with tears and laughter, celebration. Maybe if you're, you know, some music, maybe a potluck afterwards. But one day you're going to die. We don't like to think about that often, do we? I remember in college, my campus pastor did this exercise uh, periodically and he just kept asking this, and then what? You know, he was talking to a room full of college students. If you've been to a funeral, I've used this numerous times in funerals, but we were in college, and he's like, so what happens after college? What, what next? We're like, well, we get a job, and then what? Get married, and then what? Have kids, and then what? Work for 40 years, and then what? And he just keeps going, and it gets frustrating after a little while, right? And like, retire, and then what? I don't know, travel, and then what? And then what? Die, I don't know, and then what? And I remember as a college student, 20 years old, going, hmm, what about after I die? Do I, do I have a, an understanding of what the Bible says about that? Do I have any sort of understanding about life after death? You know, our, our death is not something we contemplate often, our own mortality. We, we're, we, we experience it, we think about it when we uh, go to a funeral, when we hear about a tragedy. But then our, our attention is quickly diverted to something else, something much more comfortable to think about than our own mortality. Why don't we, why don't we think about that? Why don't we think about the fact that we're going to die someday? Why don't we think about that more often? Well, I spent some time thinking through that this week. Like, why? I think there's fear. You know, we fear dying. Maybe we fear how we're going to die. We fear that we don't really have anything to look forward to beyond death. And, and the whole idea just puts us 
um, at, at disease, un- unease, we're afraid. Maybe it's a, a misaligned love. We love this world more than we love God. We would never actually say it that way, but our lives demonstrate that. That we really don't understand and have as deep of a love for God and desire for him as we do for the things of this world. Maybe it's arrogance. Maybe it's, oh, I'm going to live till I'm 90, 95, 100 years old. There's no way I'm going to die at 46, right? Maybe it's arrogance. Maybe it's a, a limited understanding of Scripture, of God's promises that he has for us. And so as a result, we don't like to think about that because we just don't understand what God has planned for us. You see, we may give lip service to what God says in his word about life after death. But it's just that. It's lip service. We don't actually live in a way that says we, we believe what we read in here. You know, I uh, heard about recently a pastor uh, who, who would spend 30 minutes a day contemplating heaven and life after death. Every day would just block off 30 minutes and he would just sit and he would consider what it's going to be like to to spend eternity with God. And that began to to shape his framework and his mind about things of this world, put it all in in the right perspective. It it was a great way to to, to embrace the theology, the hopes and promises we have of God. My my daughter uh, was out longboarding the other day. It's a thing teenagers are getting back into. Um, They were out longboarding and it was her first time and she and her friend decided to go down a hill they probably shouldn't have gone down and you know, no helmet, no pads or anything like that. And she wiped out. She's got some pretty good road rash, right? And uh, thankfully, no, no greater harm than that. But, uh, you know, in, in telling me the story, she said the, the acronym YOLT. You only live twice. And I thought, man, she gets it. At 16 years old, my, my daughter understands there is life after death. She understands what, what the Bible has to say. Now, and I'm not saying we should embrace a careless or cavalier approach to life. I'm not saying that at all. Helmets and knee pads are good when you go longboarding. I'll make sure she knows that from now on. I'm simply proposing that we need to embrace the reality of what Scripture teaches. That life is a mist. That our life here on earth is a flower that blooms in the morning and is gone by the heat of the afternoon. We're here a moment. And then we're gone. But then we're back. You know, we spend a lot of time preparing for things, right? And then we go to school to get an education. We train for athletic endeavors like marathons and 5Ks and things like that, right? We go through new employee orientation to prepare for a new job. We go through premarital counseling with a pastor. We go through parenting classes. We save money for retirement. All of these things, though, pale in comparison to the day we die. And are we preparing for that day? Are we thinking about that day? You know, the Apostle Paul, uh, Philippians, he's sitting in house arrest, potentially facing death at any moment. He just doesn't know. Like in any moment, Rome could come in and say, today's your day to die. And so he just, every day, the, the potential for death is imminent in his life. And he writes these words in Philippians chapter 1, verse, starting verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die 
is gain. And now if I, I live on in this flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of my coming to you again, your, pro- your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. Here was a guy who was facing death every day. And he's like, actually, I, man, I can't wait to be with Jesus. But man, God still has use for me here on earth. And so I want to be here. It's for your sake. It was nothing about Paul. It wasn't for his sake. But he was just facing death every day. It was on the forefront of his mind every day. If we look at American history, there have been moments where our country as a collective whole has had death on their forefront. Think back to, to World War I from 1914 to 1918. World War II from 1939 to 1945. You know, during these times, we were obviously pre, pre-Christianders, but during these times, like the reality of death was on the collective mind of our nation and nations all around the world. Like, it was just a reality. People were going to die, and people had to, to begin to wrestle through this idea of what happens when I die. I may not die in, in conflict, in military conflict, but I will die. I mean, I see death all around me, around the world right now. World War I, World War II. Shortly after uh, World War II ended in 1945, World War II ended in 1947, the Cold War began. I don't know if you know that. We had two years of relative peace, and then the Cold War began between uh, America and Russia. The threat of nuclear arms and Holocaust. And that extended to, to 1991. I remember uh, growing up, I was born in 74, so I remember throughout my whole childhood thinking, like, this could be the day the nuclear Holocaust happens. We had nuclear Holocaust drills in school. What do we do? They said, hide on your desk. I'm like, what good does that do? Right? Like, as a fourth grader, I'm like, this does nothing for me. But, you know, you're my teacher, so I'll do what you tell me to do. My sister would still tell you today, she, she'll be 44 this year, or she just turned 45, actually. Uh, she will still tell you today that she is terrified of nuclear weapons because I terrified her as a teenager. Yeah, this is what big brothers are supposed to do, right? And then 1991, to, we have this almost 30 years of relative silence where maybe death isn't on our collective mind. We have moments like 9-11. 9-11 happens and. And, but compared to World War I, World II, to the, Holo- to the, the Cold War, uh, like it was a flash in the pan, right? Like it was here, church attendance rose to the highest ever the next Sunday, and then by the next Sunday it was back down, right? People thought about death for a brief moment, and then it kind of dissipated, right? As far as a, a collective conscience. And then COVID. Now, I'm not making a political statement here. I'm not making a social statement about COVID or vaccines or masks. In fact, I don't want to talk about it. Don't come talk to me with your opinion after this. I don't really care. I'm just being honest. But no matter what your stance is, politically or socially, you have to admit that for the last year plus, death has been a collective thought for us as a people again. Maybe we weren't thinking about it for ourselves. Maybe we weren't in a category that we're going to face a potential death because of COVID. But people we know were. And people around the world died. And death was on the news all the time. And so we have this moment now once again 
where we're thinking about what happens when we die. But here's what I know. And we're already coming out of it. Here's what I know. This too shall pass. This isn't a world war. This isn't a decades-long cold war. COVID is going to pass. Pretty soon we're going to get back to the routine of life. And we're going to forget about the fact that one day we will be guests of honor at our own funeral. So here's my proposal. That we need to, to regain a sense of urgency about our death. That sounds weird to say, doesn't it? I don't want to rush forward to my death. I love what I have in this world. But I also love what God's promises are for me beyond that. You see, the reality for most of us is that life is way too comfortable. It is. We just don't think about it. Think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? For most of us in this room, we're not worried about where our next meal is going to come from. We're not worried whether we have a bed to sleep in tonight. We're not worried about whether we have a roof over our house. Do we, can we go to our job tomorrow? We don't worry about those things. And yet we have brothers and sisters in Christ around the world in developing countries that this is an everyday reality, and yet their faith is more robust than ours. They face uh, hunger, sickness, violence, death. There's sometimes everyday realities for these people. And yet they have a hope in God that we don't seem to have. A trust in life after death that we don't seem to have. Now I'll be honest, I've, I've never been faced with my own mortality. Maybe that time I drove a motorcycle too fast. Maybe the time I climbed a TV tower at 3 a.m. in the morning. Those are stories for another day. I've never had a life-threatening diagnosis. I've never had a doctor tell me you're going to die. But I've walked alongside many friends, family members, and church members over the years who have. I've been in hospital rooms when friends and loved ones have died. And in those moments, I'm confronted with the reality that life is a mist. That we're here one day, and we're gone the next. Let's take a look at Luke, our parable today. Aren't you glad you came to this encouraging church service this morning? This dreary, dismal day outside. Luke chapter 13, we're going to pick up in verse 1. It says, At that time some people came and reported to him, being Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And he responded to them, Do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Or those 18 that the tower in Siloam fell on and killed, do you think they were more sinful than all the other people who live in Jerusalem? No, I, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. And then he gets into their parable for today. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree that was planted in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it and found none. He told the vineyard worker, listen, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it even waste the soil? But he replied to him, sir, leave it this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. Perhaps it will produce fruit next year. But if not, you can cut it down. Now, vineyards, fig trees, gardens as metaphors. We see this all throughout the Bible, all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Think about the Garden of Eden, right? We begin our book, uh, the, 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 the scriptures, uh, with a story about a garden. We see man and, and woman in the garden, and God is walking along with them. Uh, think about Psalm chapter 1. Listen to how uh, Psalm chapter 1 starts. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway of sinners, 
or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. Here we go. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. We, we see this idea of, of gardens and trees and vineyards all throughout Scripture. We see the nation of Israel, God's chosen people in the Old Testament, uh, referenced as a, a garden, as this vineyard that God is tending. It's a well-used metaphor, that, that, so it makes sense, particularly in an agrarian society, that Jesus grabs hold of this, this illustration, this parable, and says, listen, it's like this, and uses a parable of barren fig tree. It could also be an allusion to, to a famous passage in Isaiah chapter 5. There's some interesting parallels. Uh, listen to these words, uh, verses 1 through 7. I'll sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and even dug out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. And so now residents of Jerusalem, men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard? This is God speaking. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? Why, when, when I expected a yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? And now I'll tell you what I'm about to do to my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge. It'll be consumed. I'll tear down its wall. It'll be trampled. I'll make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned or weeded. Thorns and briars will grow up. I'll also give orders to the clouds that rain should not fall on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, the plant he delighted in. He expected justice, but saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but heard cries of despair. Jesus steps into this moment with this audience. We don't know exactly who he's talking to and how many people. But he tells this parable. And parables, if you've been around uh, the church long, scripture long, maybe this series, uh, parables are stories about the kingdom of heaven. It's Jesus' way of, of illustrating the rule and the reign of God. How God would, would want this world to function. Now, this particular parable, theologians have, have debated it for a long time. Nobody disagrees that it's a parable about mercy and compassion and judgment. Uh, but there, there's some, some question about uh, when we apply an allegorical interpretation to it, like uh, who were certain characters in this, in this parable? Uh, for example, if we think of the owner of the vineyard as God, then uh, the worker in the vineyard could be Jesus. But then it is an interesting theological conundrum we face when we go, but Jesus is now disagreeing with God and arguing with God, and they're the one and the same person. So what do we do with that? And yet we also have in the Old Testament, Abraham and Moses seem to negotiate with God, bartering over the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah and over the nation of Israel. So it's not unheard of, but, but there's some tension there if we apply that interpretation. There's a lot of debate over the fig tree. Is the fig tree the nation of Israel like we read in Isaiah 5? Is it the, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day? Is it all of humanity? Is it the church? Is it the modern church today? Uh, what's the, the message that Jesus is saying to us today? Uh, I don't have answers for all that. Uh, but I think what's more important is we understand this parable in the context that Jesus is teaching. Uh, you always have to interpret scripture in context. Notice that, that Jesus tells two stories before, or there's two moments that Jesus has interacting with people before he tells this parable. 
The first, these, these people come up and they're, they're talking about these Galileans who were making sacrifices and Pilate murdered them. We look at that and we, we don't really understand in cultural context, but can we be honest? We understand murder. We understand tragedy. We understand senseless acts of violence. I worked at the high school this last year, and one of the things that we have to do every year is train the kids on what to do in case of an active shooter in the school. I hid under a desk during a Holocaust training. Now we're teaching our kids how to barricade rooms and what to do in case there's a person with a gun in the school. The reality is any one of us could be any place at any moment, and there could be a senseless act of violence, and our life is over. We're not guaranteed 80, 90, 100 years. The other thing that Jesus brings up up is this tower that has collapsed, the Tower of Siloam, and 18 people have died. We've been watching in Miami with this condo that's collapsed. Middle of the night, people were sleeping. 80, 100 people now dead. They didn't know it was their last day, but it was. Many of them thought, 80, 90, 100 years. And then the next day, they don't wake up. And so Jesus is being asked in this moment to speak into some cultural narratives. I don't know if you picked this up or not, but it's this idea that surely the Galileans were the good guys. The Romans were the bad guys, right? Surely the, the people who died in the tower, uh, when they fell, they were sinful and they deserved to die. This was kind of mindset of that day. And let's be honest, there's times where we think about that in our world today as well. But Jesus, in the way that I just love how he does it, they they come with an A or B option, and he comes up with a C, right? Rather than addressing the the cultural narratives, Jesus answered the question that wasn't asked. And he says, you know what? One day we're all going to die. Are you ready for that? Maybe a long life, natural death, maybe a senseless act of violence, maybe an accident, but we're all going to die. And there will be a judgment day. According to scripture, Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed for people to die once and after this judgment. And my campus pastor would say, and then what? Do we have an answer for that? You see, this this parable is about the compassion and the mercy of God. It really is. The vineyard worker says, well, give it another year. Three years was a normal time frame to produce fruit. Normally, after three years, trees would be cut down. Because if it didn't produce by three years, it's not going to produce. And so, so the vineyard worker is like, whoa, hold up to the owner. And he says, give me another year. Let me water it. Let me put some manure on it. Let me treat it, fertilize it, all of these things. Let, let's, let's extend some grace here, some compassion, some mercy. Let's hold off judgment yet. And so the owner extends it one more year. But here's what's interesting about this parable. While it's about the compassion and mercy of God, it does not cancel the day of judgment. There will be a day of judgment. There will be an end to this tree. There will be an end to our lives. But if we know the promises of God, and we know the heart of God, God desires that all men be saved. And he has done everything possible to make it for us to spend eternity with him. This idea of judgment and mercy, 
Sometimes we call it justice and mercy. They go hand in hand throughout Scripture. We all like the mercy and the compassion and the grace side of things, right? We love that side of it. But think about this for a moment. This is kind of a philosophical thought. You can't have mercy unless there's judgment. There's no need for mercy, right? I mean, you're standing before a judge and the gavel's about to come down. You're guilty and all of a sudden you're extended mercy. Well, that was because there was judgment coming. And so as much as we love mercy and compassion and grace, we have to understand it's at the expense of judgment, as a result of judgment. There can be no mercy without judgment. And God, in his love for us, extends simultaneously both mercy and judgment. We all know that illustration I just hinted at, the courtroom scene. It's a little limited at times in explaining God. It's a little flawed at explaining the heart of God, in my opinion. We can talk about that sometime. I'd rather talk about that than COVID. Um, but we, we know this illustration. We stand before a righteous judge with inherited guilt simply from being born and then owned guilt from living our life not the way God would want us to live. It's called sin. And there's consequences for our sin. A, a penalty has to be paid. Judgment has to be enacted. We cannot stand in the presence of a holy God with sin present in our lives. And as the gavel is about to come down, in steps Jesus. Not to dissuade the judge from executing judgment, but to embrace the judgment upon himself rather than on us. It's as if we're, we're there in the box, guilty, standing before God, and Jesus pushes us out of the way, out of the way of a, a moving semi coming down the road. He saves us, and he takes on the death himself. This is the hope of Jesus. This is the work of Jesus. Listen to these very familiar, for many of us, very familiar passages from Romans. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is nobody that has not sinned. Nobody is perfect. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And there is a price. Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. Death. And we're not talking physical death, although that's a result of the fall. But what Paul is talking about here in Romans is spiritual death. This parable, Jesus says, repent or perish. We're all going to die. And Jesus is saying, listen, there is a way that you can have life after death. Yolt, you only live twice. If you embrace the gift that I'm giving you, Romans 6.23, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, this is the heart of God, Romans 5.8, that while we were still sinners, if you back it up a couple verses, while we were destined to die, Jesus died for us. And we're, we're called to this line in the sand moment. Uh, we go, what do we do with this? I'm going to die. I'm going to be the guest of honor at my own funeral someday. Pictures will be told. Lunch will be had. Life will move on. What do I do with this moment in time? Do I believe that I'm a sinner in need of salvation? Do I believe that, that I can save myself or do I need a savior? Do I believe that Jesus actually died on the cross, rose from the grave three days later, conquering death? 
the, the last and final power that this world has over us? And, and am I willing to get down on my knees and surrender to him? To say, it's not my life anymore. It's yours. Whether I, I live for another moment or another 40 years, my life is yours, and it's yours for eternity. See, we, we have this line in the sand that, that we have to respond to. And, and here's what, what's interesting. God will never force himself upon you. He will never make you love him. That's not love. If you try to make your child love you, more often than not, they will rebel against you. If you force love on them, they will rebel against you. But if you create a choice, God in both mercy and judgment says there's a penalty for your sin, but I myself will take that penalty. And all you have to do is surrender. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If we declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your, your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. I've always been on the side of loving people into heaven rather than scaring them out of hell. And this has not been that hellfire brimstone. That's a whole other sermon. The Bible and Jesus talk about the reality of hell, and that's a whole other sermon. I, I'm simply hitting on a reality that we will all one day die. And have we done the work to prepare for that day? We will all be guests of honor at our own funeral. And then what? I want to give you a chance this morning. We don't do these every Sunday. But this parable and this message is perfect opportunity. I don't know where you're at with Jesus. So we've been walking with Jesus for a long, long time. And we celebrate that. We love that. Take your next step. We talk about Great Oaks that we all have a next step towards God. Take your next step. Some of you here today, you're returning to church. Uh, maybe you went to church when you were a little kid, uh, but now as an adult, you're finally coming back. And you're beginning to explore what it means to have a, a faith that's vibrant. We would love to walk alongside you in that. Some of you are here today and you know that what I'm talking about, you've actually never gotten down on your knees and surrendered to Jesus. You've never said, I want him to be my, my savior, my Lord, my master, my coach, whatever metaphor you wanna use, whatever it looks like to, to die to self, to say, Jesus, I can't do this on my own. I need you to save me. And I surrender today. Some of you have never made that decision. We want to give you that chance today. It's nothing, you're not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to stand up. I mean, I'm going to pray. And if you're ready to make that decision, I would ask you to pray with me. And then talk to one of our prayer workers on the sides. I'll be here as well, but we've got prayer workers as well. We would love to celebrate with you. Uh, scripture says that, that Jesus uh, would leave the 99, the parable of the shepherd, right? Would leave the 99 to go after the one that was lost. Uh, that when one sinner repents and turns their, their life over, that there's a party in heaven. There's a celebration. Our faith is both private and corporate. It is not just for you, it is for us, the body of Christ. You join a family when you surrender to Jesus. Uh, and we would love to walk beside you as your brothers and sisters. Let's pray. 
Father God, I remember that moment years ago in college when I looked at my own life and I saw the chaos and the whirlwind of just horrible things happening in my life. And I remember crying out and just thinking, is there nothing that will ever stay constant? Is there nothing that I can plant my feet on in your Holy Spirit brought to mind Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God will never change. God will never leave you. God will never disappoint you. I remember surrendering that night. Father, my prayer this morning is that if there are people in the room that this is their moment, uh, that they will uh, just metaphorically get down on their knees, maybe actually get down on their knees, and then they would just cry out to you. And God, they would say, I am a sinner in need of salvation. And Father, I recognize today that I can't save myself. I've been trying. I've been trying. I've been trying to be a good person, trying to do the right things. And it's all just falling apart around me still. I don't know what it was that I needed, but now I do. It's Jesus. So, Father, I am a sinner in need of salvation, and I admit that I cannot save myself. I believe in your son, Jesus. I believe that he came down to earth, left the throne room of heaven, that he was crucified, that he was buried in a borrowed grave, that he rose three days later, conquering death, ending the barrier between God and man. And Father, I surrender. I give you my all. I'm going to let you tell me who I am. I'm going to let you tell me what I should do where I should go, how I should live my life. Father, I, I, I get it. You made me. You know me best. You know what's best for me. And so I just kneel down and I lift up my hands and I say, take my life. I'm dying to myself today. Jesus, we love you. God, we love that you aren't leaving us in our sinfulness that you haven't left us without hope and promises for the future. Thank you so much for being our Heavenly Father. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, I'd really encourage you, please, go let one of the prayer workers know. We would love to walk beside you as you take your next steps in faith. Thanks for being here.